Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. 38-year-old Michael Bennett was incarcerated at Pendleton Correctional Facility near Indianapolis when he died last week after an outbreak of a rare form of pneumonia. Multiple units have been affected and five others were hospitalized. The often fatal bacterial infection known as Legionnaire's disease causes severe lung inflammation. No vaccine is available. The illness is typically spread through facility water systems or air conditioning, and officials explain that hot water to the facility has been shut off in response to the outbreak. IDOC Watch reported that in late September of this year, inmates were alerted to a problem with water quality, but were told that the risk was minimal. Staff began drinking bottled water, but inmates were made to continue drinking the contaminated water. Kristen Kelly, the IU Health Nursing Director of Infection Prevention, told Fox 59 News that contamination from Legionnaire's disease can linger for months, and the IDOC has given little information about the source of contamination or their plans for remediating it. Michael Bennett's death comes a few days after the death in the same prison of an elderly inmate from COVID-19 complications. Since the start of the pandemic, prisoners, loved ones, and other advocates have criticized the lack of hygiene and distancing measures in Indiana prisons, with 4,000 inmates so far testing positive for coronavirus. 71-year-old Matu Shakur, the stepfather of late rapper Tupac Shakur, has been incarcerated for over three decades. After contracting COVID-19 inside federal prison, Shakur's cancer returned in his bone marrow. Originally scheduled for release in 2016, Shakur had also accrued nearly three years of good time, which should make him eligible for immediate release. Instead, Shakur has been denied release by parole nine times. And an application for compassionate release on the basis of Shakur's health crisis was denied by Judge Charles Haight Jr., the same judge who sentenced him three decades earlier. Haight was 90 years old when he ruled against Shakur's release, and suggesting that Shakur could be released when he was, quote, at the point of approaching death, unquote. A member of the Black Nationalist Organization Republic of New Africa, Matulu Shakur is well known as an acupuncturist who popularized the NADA protocol, an accessible acupuncture technique for addressing methadone and heroin addiction. Shakur became a target of the U.S. government's now infamous COINTELPRO project in the 1970s as he was working to organize grassroots holistic health care in the Bronx and New York. Inside prison, friends say that Shakur is well known for his ability to mediate race-based gang conflicts encouraged by extreme administrative segregation. The administration cites Shakur's work organizing and communicating with the outside as a primary reason for his illegal continued incarceration. Specifically, the commission cited Shakur's describing himself as a political prisoner, signing off letters with stiff resistance, and speaking about his persecution by COINTELPRO. Shakur's lawyers are still waiting to hear back about their latest requests for compassionate release. 
This week marks 80 years since the Japanese military's 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor and the U.S. government incarceration in World War II concentration camps of more than 100,000 Japanese Americans, most of whom were U.S. citizens. Immediately following the Pearl Harbor attack, more than 5,000 Japanese American community leaders were arrested without individual charges. Most of these leaders were then transferred to long-term concentration camps. The following February, President Franklin Roosevelt issued an executive order authorizing the military to establish, quote, exclusion zones, where German, Italian, and Japanese Americans were given night curfews and then later ordered to evacuate their homes. General John L. DeWitt advised Roosevelt to consider treatment specifically for Japanese Americans in a famous letter in early 1942. DeWitt advised the president that, quote, the Japanese race is an enemy race, and while many second- and third-generation Japanese have become Americanized, the racial strains are undiluted. It therefore follows that over 112,000 potential enemies are at large today. The very fact that no sabotage has taken place to date is a disturbing and confirming indication that such action will be taken." Unquote. Shortly after DeWitt's recommendation, Japanese Americans began to be imprisoned in concentration camps throughout the West Coast. In addition, 13 Latin American countries cooperated with the U.S. to detain and deport thousands of Japanese Latin American residents and citizens to the U.S. for incarceration. 120,000 Japanese Americans were eventually imprisoned. Housing in the camps was uninsulated and crowded. The camps were located in remote rural areas with armed guards who had instructions to shoot anyone who tried to leave. Resistance was not uncommon, with record of riots, work stoppages, and other instances of unrest. Strikes in the Poston and Thule Lake camps were particularly notable, with people shot by the military in order to restore order. Roosevelt ordered the camps closed in January 1945, shortly after his re-election campaign won an unprecedented fourth term, and closing the camps took nearly a year. Each resident was given $25 and a train ticket home, though many had little to return to, having lost their homes, farms, jobs, and businesses. The return, especially in Central California, was met with explosives, fires, and gunshots aimed at homes, businesses, and places of worship. The Japanese Exclusion League, in partnership with the American Legion, was one of several organizations which openly campaigned against the return of Japanese Americans to their previous homes, and publicly threatened vigilante retribution in local newspapers. But informally, employment and housing discrimination remained widespread after the war. For those interested in learning more about the history of the camps, consider looking up the Campu, C-A-M-P-U, podcast, a recent storytelling project exploring deeper into this telling moment in U.S. history. Next, we hear about carceral nonprofits in an interview with Drs. Jean-Darc Corti, a professor of criminology and criminal justice at Loyola University, Chicago, and Jared Shanahan, a professor of criminal justice at Governor State University in Chicago. Jana and Jared are abolitionist scholars who research incarceration, and in recent years, their work turned to studying the reconfiguration of the U.S. penal system in the wake of the delegitimization of mass incarceration. They write that, Today we find ourselves in a unique moment of the penal crisis. Fear of crime does not register on a national level as it has in the past. At the exact moment, the historic injustices of mass incarceration have become a matter of popular anger and disgust. For example, quote, the conquest and burning of Minneapolis's third precinct in response to the police murder of George Floyd was a profound act of abolition, which established the political terrain in which the George Floyd rebellion has unfolded since. Unquote. But this growing chorus to end mass incarceration consists not only of abolitionists, but also liberals and some on the right. 
this conversation addresses the carceral nonprofits who steer radical change towards liberal reform and the promotion of carceral expansion under the guise of decarceration. These are not the small nonprofits adjacent to the criminal justice system that assist prisoners and their families meet basic needs. Carceral nonprofits may support various reentry programs for incarcerated people, conduct research about the criminal justice system, advocate for and fund various policy changes, and lastly, in moments of crisis, emerge as powerful advocates for the carceral status quo. Carceral nonprofits are lobbyists and foundations like the Vera Institute and Ford Foundation, state contractors redesigning jails like the group Designing Justice, Designing Spaces, and even more private investors like Arnold Ventures. Today's conversation looks at Jean and Jared's experiences in New York City and the campaign to close Rikers, a decarceration movement in which participants had to pick a side, the abolition or progressive reform. Here they are. We're here today with Jana Kurti and Jared Shanahan talking about their recent research which has come out in a few different forms. Um, one was an article called Rebranding Mass Incarceration, the Lipton Commission and Carceral Devolution in New York City, which came out in Social Justice in 2018. And then a more recent one titled Managing Urban Disorder in the 1960s, the New York City Model, which came out on Gotham in January of 2020. And there's a forthcoming article coming out from ACME entitled Carceral Nonprofits and the Limits of Prison Reform. They also have a book on the subject coming out entitled States of Mass Incarceration, Rebellion, Reform and the Future of America's Punishment System, uh, which will be in the Field Notes series of reaction books. And it's coming out in September. And today we're going to look at their close study of Rikers and how over the last few years, the crisis of mass incarceration in the United States has really refigured the nonprofit system. So to just kind of jump right in, how did you two come to this research? Well, thank you, Bella, for having us on the show. It's really nice to be here again talking with you and your listeners. So yeah, to give some context, um, Jerry and I have been kind of looking at doing this project in different ways over the past couple of years. A lot of it has been political, right, in the sense that we have been really interested in the fights and the struggles around police violence against mass incarceration and how in many ways they have been challenged, they have been stalled. Uh, by particular interests and forces. And all of this kind of culminated in New York City, which was where we were both living at the time a few years back uh, around the fight to close Rikers Island, which brought together different kinds of interests, but was importantly led by also an abolitionist collective. And we kind of really saw this as uh, something that was happening not only in New York City, but nationwide, right? For the past decade, there's been a really important um, uh, mass incarceration, right? The social ills of mass incarceration have really moved from the margins, you know, where mostly was kind of like something that like academics and folks that were incarcerated were like more concerned with, right? And has moved to the center stage of American life. And with that have come important challenges and pitfalls, right? As different various interests from libertarians to conservatives to liberals have joined this fight to end mass incarceration. So we kind of really wanted to understand what was happening and focus on New York City in particular. Let's start with this 
idea that we're in a moment of crisis and mass incarceration. Could you unpack that a little bit? For the past couple of years, uh, the work that Jar and I have done has kind of been trying to understand this moment, right, and offer some political analysis to what often is seems like very hazy terrain, right? Um, and actually, uh, the book that we have coming out in September uh, takes this uh, line of analysis too, right, which is um, the fact that really the George Floyd rebellion um, laid bare this wider crisis in terms of the carceral state, um, in terms of the legitimacy that um, the carceral state, whether that's policing, incarceration, all of kind of the tentacles, all the ways in which po the poor, uh, poor uh, people of color are criminalized in the United States, all of that kind of entering this moment of crisis, right? And really different forces trying to, to rescue and recuperate it in different ways, right? So George Floyd really being the, the moment that laid this open and bare, but we, you know, we, we, said, we have said in the book and in other places that this has really been a decade in the making, right? Mass incarceration in general um, has been really, you know, the response of the state to austerity. It's not a coincidence that, you know, a, a driver of mass incarceration is obviously the criminalization of poverty. So th there is a sense that mass incarceration is no longer tenable to the ruling class, right? To both wings of the ruling class who are now both vying to reduce it and bring back kind of this uh, rehabilitative, almost humane form of punishment. So this is why we see a lot of talk today about reducing mass incarceration, bringing back human dignity to punishment. There's a sense that mass incarceration really reveals an American state gone awry. And we see kind of both wings of the ruling class once spearheaded the rise of mass incarceration, right? Now trying to scale it back, largely due to a lot of fiscal concerns, but also really this legitimacy problem. Yeah, that's great, John. And in, in a word, I mean, our line on the rebellion in 2020 that we shared on this program at the time was that this is, the, this represents the widespread rejection of an entire way of life that's defined by human disposability, especially the disposability of Black people in the United States, and that is managed primarily through policing and incarceration. Um, and so you saw in very militant terms the rejection on a mass scale of this way of life that has, as Jana has emphasized, been building for a long time around the growing chorus against what we call mass incarceration. And I think part of our project is to kind of really look at the interest that belie this reconfiguration, right? Again, and we would say that while there's a lot of attention to kind of the conservative aspects, right? Those who want to undo mass incarceration because they're worried about fiscal concerns, like these conservative think tanks. In our work, we also pay attention a lot to the liberals, right? Uh, because they're interested in undoing it for their own reasons, right? And you know, so I, in our work, we kind of unpack that a lot to look at how basically the liberal understanding of it is punishment is okay, right? Uh, it's just that mass incarceration as it stands is just too big, right? So we need to reduce it. And this is why a lot of liberal nonprofits, you know, whenever they talk about ending mass incarceration is never to end it in an abolitionist sense, right? To end, to end the social order that props up incarceration in the carceral state, but they just want to end mass incarceration and, 
you know, build better jails, more humane jails, bring human dignity back and really kind of reduce the size and scope of incarceration without challenging the logic of why the state punishes why the state criminalizes poverty, right? It does never, could never address those structural problems. It's always about just reducing the scope to a more manageable level. Thank you for kind of giving us an, an overview of the project and how we have these really, I think what we'll see over the course of the conversation are three different political tendencies. There's the conservative, which is focused more so on government measures that reduce a budget by reducing public expenditure. And then we have a liberal discourse, which may also be concerned with that, but is more so concerned with this human dignity, which can be really appealing to abolitionists, which are the third tendency and the perspective that we'll get into a little bit more over the course of the conversation. You do a close study of the Closed Rikers campaign and also the Vera Institute and how that's affected politics and this like stratification that you just outlined of, of uh, different political responses um, to uh, mass incarceration. And I was wondering if you could give our listeners a bit more of that history on Vera because it's absolutely fascinating and I don't think it's been very well documented elsewhere. So before we talk about Vera in particular, I think it's important to specify what we mean when we say nonprofits. And in this case, we're talking about specifically about foundations. Foundations, um, which fund a lot of the big nonprofits, are what um, the geographer Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls repositories of twice stolen wealth. What this means is that this is money that first the capitalists stole from their workers by not paying them the value of their labor, and that they once more stole by avoiding taxation through these clever financing structures at the root of these, the massive um, nonprofit juggernauts like the Ford Foundation that are currently in the philanthropy business. But it will, as you, you may know about the Ford Foundation, its origins were much less magnanimous. It was um, founded as a way of avoiding the taxation on the intergenerational transmission of wealth implemented by FDR. Um, and so this is a glorified tax shelter. Over time, the Ford Foundation evolved into a philanthropy organization aimed at addressing social ills in the best interest of capital. So these are organizations that represent the most advanced and class conscious aspects of the bourgeoisie. So when you have folks like Donald Trump running around who will, you know, screw over, you know, everybody they do business with, and they'll saw off the branch that they're sitting on just to make a buck, right? And they'll die and their last check will bounce, right? The more responsible, the kind of Obama wing of the U.S. ruling class, right, has a more far-sighted approach to social problems. And the Ford Foundation has, in the last half century, emerged as the exemplar of the responsible class-conscious, far-sighted wing of the American bourgeoisie. And so that they use this money, this tax-sheltered money, um, this twice-stolen wealth, to invest in 
the redress of very serious and real social ills. Probably their foremost concern in the mid 20th century was the stark inequality attendant to the U.S. color line, specifically the poverty in segregated black neighborhoods in the American North. And they didn't do it out of the goodness of their hearts, right? This was a crisis moment for governance in northern cities. And the Ford Foundation and other uh, philanthropic organizations like them introduced a model that relied not on the force of the policeman's club to keep order in these black neighborhoods, but the mechanisms of soft power, cultivating a local leadership class, generating stakeholders among the black community who would be loyal to capital, loyal to development, um, cultivating a black political class that would purport to represent people who were who were otherwise at risk of becoming communists or revolting. And so this was the model that these nonprofits operate in. And actually, um, the Vera Institute, um, which is one of the, the main players in the reform movement against mass incarceration today, was originally funded by the Ford Foundation. It was sort of a, a feather in its cap in this mid-century period. And I think Jana could probably say a little bit about that. Yeah, so Vera got its start as actually implementing one of the first bail reform projects in um, New York State. I think it's difficult, right? Because as Jared was talking about, if we look at Ford Foundation, Open Society, Vera, all of these different foundations and large nonprofits, they do constitute, right, like the liberal wing of capital. So in many ways, they're sometimes very much juxtaposed to kind of the libertarian conservative think tanks, you know, and these like very conservative large nonprofits that are also funding criminal justice reform. So I think we are seeing reform from both of these angles, right, with very kind of different interests. But Vera kind of has this long history in bail reform and, you know, over time has become kind of a major research and development aspect, right, where it kind of, it goes through different local and state jurisdictions to implement reform, to work with local stakeholders, right? So on the face of it, a lot of people would say, well, this is positive. Vera is kind of helping end mass incarceration and institute kind of a more humane form of incarceration. And that's something that we've tackled in the past couple of years through these various articles and projects, right? It's to kind of really challenge this idea of what, right, like the political activist and theorist James Kilgore calls carceral humanism, right? The fact that mass incarceration has lost so much political legitimacy that among at least liberals, what is being embraced is ending mass incarceration and re replacing it with a more humane form of punishment, right? And kind of really forgetting the historical roots and role that punishment plays in the capitalist order, in the ways in which it disciplines and warehouses people, right? And maintains and reproduces social order. You know, these nonprofits also kind of help to reimagine prisons as these humane carceral spaces, right? That we could end mass incarceration, we could effectively roll it back, and we could redesign jail to be places of true rehabilitation. And, you know, it kind of speaks against to this liberal ethos that punishment was about rehabilitation and somehow mass incarceration came along and punishment went awry. It lost its original intent to rehabilitate people and now it's about solely about punishment right, which is kind of a liberal tale <laughs> of how, of what punishment is, right? But I think that's kind of something that also what the, these nonprofits help enable as well. 
I think Jana made an excellent point by emphasizing that in the present, the carceral nonprofits, as we call them, are responding to a moment of crisis. And historically, it is in these moments of crisis that these otherwise humanistic, liberal, sometimes radical talking organizations, right? I mean, if you read the mission statements and the social media of some of the nonprofits that supported the new jails in New York, for instance, which I think we'll probably talk about in a minute. If you read the mission statements of those organizations, I mean, you might bump into references to Asada Shakur of the Black Liberation Army. You'll encounter a host of social justice language. So these are these are left talking organizations which employ uh, a lot of people who are well-meaning leftist oriented individuals, but in moments of crisis, the organizations themselves serve a recuperative and even a counterinsurgent role. And stepping in to the, the vacuum opened up in a moment of crisis and serving to legitimate the carceral state, serving to defend the heritage of American incarceration against the crisis of legitimacy. This is a clear crossroads that we find ourselves in these, these moments um, when the existing institutions are robbed of their legitimacy. I mean, we can embrace these moments and we can push them as far as we can, right? Which is obviously the view that John and I have, you know, followed that we, the, the, the prison system, the punishment system is discredited. You know, people like, well, a lot of people went out in the summer of 2020 trying to burn down police stations and courthouses. And, you know, this is the recent past. And so what do we do in this moment? Do we try to redesign the, the bourgeois courts to be slightly more just and uh, racially sensitive? No, we, we embrace the illegitimacy that these institutions have earned for themselves, right? So you see that the carceral nonprofits represent the opposite view. That actually, the problem is not that these institutions are so horrible, but the problem is that they've lost legitimacy. We'll air the rest of their conversation next week. We'll have links to the previous episodes with Corti and Shanahan on our website, and this conversation builds on previous KiteLine episodes with guests Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law, who wrote Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, and Kelly Grace Price with Close Rosies, as well as Judah Shept and Nicole Siegel with Decarcerate Monroe County. If you'd like to read more on this topic after the interview, John and Jared's related articles are Rebranding Mass Incarceration, the Lipman Commission and Carceral Devolution in New York City, which appeared in Social Justice in 2018, Managing Urban Disorder in the 1960s, the New York City Model, on the Gotham Center for New York History's blog in 2020, and Carceral Nonprofits and the Limits of Prison Reform, which is forthcoming from ACME, an international journal of critical geographies. Their book, States of Incarceration, Rebellion, Reform, and the Future of America's Punishment System, is forthcoming on the Field Notes series from Reaction Books. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can call us to share your story, report on prison conditions, or let us know about an issue that you or a loved one is experiencing at 765-343-6236. That's 765-343-6236.
You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to support our work, you can become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.